We're continuing along in our series, Christmas on Lockdown. And remember, we, we framed this series along these lines, that people today want the effects of Christmas, or we could say Christianity, without the cause. So we're, we're really unpacking this series and asking questions of what would not be here today had Jesus not been born and last week, of course, we took a look at human dignity. For our topic this morning, I want to go back and share a little of my experience. I did an internship with a church in Dalton, Illinois, uh, while I was in seminary. The name of the church was Lorimer Baptist Church, and the church had a long, complex, sometimes sad, but also hopeful history. In the early part of the church's history, we're talking now about the 60s or 70s, they reacted to population demographic changes that were happening in the community. They were centered in the city of Chicago, and there was a phenomenon that would happen all around the city that was later dubbed white flight, and the church participated in this as the community transitioned from mostly white to becoming mixed white and African-American, the church fled with the population and they moved to the suburb of Dalton. Well, sadly, in the 80s, the late 80s and early 90s, the same thing happened again. And the church was at a crossroads. They had a big decision to make. Do we flee again? Do we move our church because of this demographic change? Or do we settle down our roots here and become a diverse church with this change. Well, the youth pastor was left with the big decision. The senior pastor had come to him um, while all of this was happening, and he said to him, if you're going to be practical, you're going to leave this church. You're going to go elsewhere. These types of things never go well. And so I'm putting in my resignation. I would encourage you to do the same thing. And it was a big seismic change. I mean, we're talking in the uh, five to seven year time frame, the church or the community of Dalton went from 100% white to 95% African-American. Big, 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 big change. Well, the youth pastor said to himself, you know what? I feel like God's calling me to lead this change. And so he put his name in the hat for the senior pastor position. He in turn, got the job as he casted the vision, let's take this church and let's make it a beautiful expression of multicultural worship. And when I came to the church, this was some 15 to 20 years later, they had gone through the tough, even painful waters of this transition. And what I saw was awesome. I walked in and the congregation was 90% African-American, 10% white, uh, beautiful, diverse expressions of preaching and worship style. And it was all because the church felt that they needed to stay. Now, there was another, though, transition that was happening while I was there. The suburb of Dalton was experiencing a second kind of flight. I was doing some community assessment, and I was becoming more and more aware that middle-class African-Americans were moving out of the suburb. I went to the lead pastor, and I said, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And he said, well, what we're starting to understand is that middle-class African-Americans are moving out because low-income African-Americans from the city are moving in. 
And I looked at him and I said, Dan, what? why are they doing that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Didn't, isn't that what just happened to them some 15 or so years ago? And he said this statement. He said, you know, Rob, we're all the same. We all run away from people who are not like us and those who make us feel uncomfortable. I got to say, that's a sad but true statement. You know, we live in a world, and, and we're not just talking about recent history, we're talking about world history that is diversity challenged. It's challenged in this sense. We trust and feel safe with those who are most like ourselves. Uh, two big things, fear and the feeling of superiority have led to some of the darkest moments in history. So let's ask the big question now of Jesus. What if we put Christmas on lockdown? What if we take Jesus away from the world? What happens? Well, I want to take you back again to the year 5 BC, and I want us to look at three common barriers in this day and age, and they are classism, racism, and gender, sexism. So let's begin with classism. And and the way we can frame this conversation is you have to look at their economic situation and what did it look like? What was their economy built upon? We tend to think of an economy with having employers and employees, a lower class, a middle class, and an upper class, but their economic system was totally different. It was comprised of masters and slaves, of clients and patrons. Uh, they had no other way of thinking about the world. In fact, some statistics would suggest that 25% of the Roman Empire was slaves. That was a different form of slavery. It wasn't race-based like the American form of slavery. So you'd have people who were Greek and German and dark-skinned and light-skinned. But it was equally horrific. People were treated less than human women and children were sometimes sold away from husbands and fathers. They were exploited. It was a big problem in this day. Some of the jobs, such as working in the mines, were virtual death sentences for people, and you couldn't rise above the situation. Why? Well, because they didn't have things like vocational training and re-education so that you could learn a different trade. So often what would happen with slaves is that they would sometimes gain their freedom and then they would go back into slavery because there's just no way to take care of yourself or support yourself. It was an economy that was built on economic superiors and economic inferiors. Let's move on to another barrier. This one was race and ethnicity. Now, as I think about race and ethnicity, um, I, I tend to think of it like two different people that are, you know, really separated from one another. And the distance between them could either be, you can think of it as like a canyon or a chasm or something like that. And all of that separation has to do with their culture, ethnicity, maybe the way they look, the language that they speak. Now, if these two people are to come together for some kind of common purpose, what tends to happen as you look at history is that both sides on each end of the canyon say, I'm willing to move forward with you if you're willing to cross all of the chasm to me. Learn my culture. Learn my language. 
Now, this was true in Jesus' day, too. One of the great separations or divisions in terms of race and ethnicity had to do with the Jew-Gentile distinction. And it was a big gap, a big divide. It was religious in nature. The Jews looked at the Gentiles as pagans, and likewise, the Gentiles looked at the Jews, and they thought that, hey, they only believe in one God. We believe in a pantheon of gods. We're more spiritual than them. It was also social. They had religious rights, dietary restrictions, even physical separations. The Jews engaged in circumcision. The Gentiles did not. And finally, it was racial. You see, the separation could go all the way back in the bloodlines to Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. John Piper notes this, The divide here was as big or bigger than any divide that we face today among Anglo, African, Latino, Asian, or Native American. Now, the third divide I would submit to you was gender, and we we looked at that last week. We looked at the issues that women faced in 5 BC. We looked at how they were treated as subhuman. You just have to get it in your mind. This is normal in this day and age. There's no women's suffrage movement. There's no rights acts such as equal employment. There's no protection in the divorce courts. So again, we've got to ask the big question. Just as we saw a big overcoming in terms of human dignity, we asked the question, how do we move from nobody matters really to Horton here is a who, who, a person's a person, no matter how small. How do we move from these three common barriers to where we're at today in history? Now, I'm not saying that we've done it all right, that everything's perfect. In fact, I'm telling you that story from Dalton, Illinois, to give you a recent example of how the, the barriers still exist today. I'm also trying to be transparent in the sense to say that the church hasn't always gotten this right. But I will say this. Even if there are shortcomings, right, with Christians, you can never look at the person of Jesus or the Scriptures and find those shortcomings. If anyone's ever leveraged the Bible to defend things like slavery or economic separations, anything along those lines, that person has misinterpreted and misapplied the Bible. Let's look at the story of Jesus, and we'll see this. What I find amazing about the the Christmas story is that Jesus' birth showcases people who are considered outcasts or marginalized. And each of these people receive front row seats to God's unfolding plan of salvation. Let's think first of the shepherds. I would suggest to you that the shepherds represent people from the wrong class. They're on the lowest rung of the economic system. They were viewed as the uncouth, the uneducated, the ones that you keep away from. In fact, they're so lowly regarded that their testimony was not admissible in the court of law. Let's think about the wise men. They represent people who are from the wrong ethnicity. Isn't it interesting that God uses non-Jewish scholars 
to recognize what he was doing, where the origin of his son being born into the world would be. And, and they don't come to this realization through special revelation, which is the scripture. No, they come to this realization through general revelation, which is they were astron astronomers, and they're looking up at the stars, and they notice that they need to follow a certain star. And then they become aware through the Jewish scholars that Bethlehem's the place where the Messiah would be born. The third barrier is represented to us by Mary and Elizabeth and Anna, they represent those who are from the wrong gender. Remember, in this day, women treated as subhuman, and yet Mary is called favor. She is, receives the blessing and the honor of carrying the Messiah. Elizabeth is a barren woman who then becomes pregnant with the forerunner to the Messiah. And she recognizes the Messiah in Mary's womb. And Anna, of course, is a widow who spent most of her life in prayer ministry in the temple. And she recognizes that baby Jesus, as he's being presented, is the anointed one. Now, do you see what's happening in the Christmas story? Boundaries are being shattered. One by one, God is declaring that there's not a special class of people. There's no superior race. There's no more valuable gender. He's saying to everyone, I am the God of all people, and all people have the same need. They're not mostly separated because of their class and their race and their gender from me. Not at all. They're spiritually separated from me because of their sin. And I am willing to cross that great divide. I'm willing to send my son into the world to bring people into right relationship with myself. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I could show you this same theme throughout the life of Jesus. I could show you it in his teaching ministry. But I want to move actually past the birth, the life. I want to move past even the death and the ascension of Jesus. And I want to ask the big question, did Jesus' first followers recognize this theme? Did they understand that God was for all people? Did they struggle with the barriers? And the big question is, how did the gospel change that? And we're going to take a look at this by looking at the most unlikely convert of them all, Paul. Paul was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was so ardent and zealous for the Jewish faith that he actually intentionally went out and persecuted the church. And Jesus does something radical. He takes this ardent, zealous Hebrew, and he turns him into the apostle to who? The Gentiles. I want you to read an exchange. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The name Cephas in this text is another name for Peter, and Paul is going to confront one of these barriers in the text. Verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Guys, this is an explosive conversation, right? I mean, think about Peter. Peter is the leader of the apostles. I know we look at the Gospels and we look at instances where Peter's putting his foot in his mouth and we're like, ah, can he get his act together? But guys, he is always out front in the pack leading in many situations. He's the first one to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So can you imagine being Paul and confronting this? Now, why is Peter doing this? Why is he succumbing to the pressure of the circumcision party? Why is he afraid? I suspect that it has something to do with the fear of conflict, not an agreement with the position. One author says this, Beware of living a life governed by the fear of controversy. It may drive you to hypocritical behaviors. Sometimes you have to do the right thing, and it's going to be incredibly unpopular to do it. Sometimes you're going to be standing alone in the action you take. And if you don't do that, then you're going to lead other people down the wrong path with you. And that's exactly what Peter does, even who? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is brought into this hypocrisy. I love what Paul does here and how he approaches the confrontation. Notice that he doesn't begin with saying things like, you know, Peter, by doing this, you're making people feel bad because you're leaving people out, and that's not really nice. Now, that's true. It's hurtful to leave people out. But But he goes deeper than that. He goes deeper than that, that topical how people feel dynamic. And he says to Paul or Peter, what you're doing is contradictory to the gospel. You need to love the gospel more. You need to appreciate the gospel more. And your actions need to align with the truth of the gospel. Essentially, he's saying to him, look, Peter, in the way that you're living right now, you're telling people that it's Christ plus something else. You're you're saying to all these people, like, sometimes you need to obey the Jewish laws and sometimes it's okay not to, which says to everyone that it's Christ plus works. It's Christ in addition to something else. But we know the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There's nothing that I could do, no work that I could add to the work that's already been fully and finally completed at the cross by Jesus. In fact, I was so in desperate need of that that Jesus is the only one that could bring me in right relationship to God. So it's not about how often I come to church or how many verses I memorize or how many people I lead to Christ. Now, those things are important, but they're not the means by which I am saved. They're the fruit of it. You see, 
John Piper rightly notes this. Any kind of racially or ethnically based exclusion will send the wrong message about the basis of our acceptance with God. It will subtly suggest that something about our race or our ethnicity or our works or our natural distinctives is the means of our justification. Now, justification means being made right with God in the spiritual realm. It is our salvation. Piper continues, when we are thrilled by the unspeakable freedom of being right with God in spite of the magnitude of our sinful corruption and that others of every race and ethnicity enjoy the same freedom with us, there will be a humility, a love, a zeal to magnify grace that dissolves ethnic hostilities. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel is like a wrecking ball to the walls that divide us. Let's take another look at the, this. Let's look at class. Let's think about the institution of slavery in these days. You see, some people look at Paul and they give him a bad rap. They say either one, he didn't go far enough with regard to slavery, or two, he supported it because of statements like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. He said, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. And it's true, in history, some people latched onto a verse like that while not really caring about other verses of the Bible to support what they wanted. But I think it's really important today that we avoid a, a very common form of pride. You see, I can't talk to people who lived in the past. I can't interpret Scripture to them. I can have a conversation with us. And I think there's a very dangerous form of pride in today's modern world. We like to read our current morals and advances in human rights back into history. And we like to proudly say things like, you know, if I was living back then, I would have been so much different. I would have had plaques and banners out, and I would have protested against the Romans, and I would have told them that you shouldn't be enslaving people. You need to set them free. But here's reality. It's more likely that we would have been shaped so much by this system that we wouldn't have known anything different. So, if someone were to speak out to elevate slaves, to argue for the kinder treatment of slaves, or to tell slaves that they're equal to everyone else, this is like seismic leaps in moral progress and in human rights. And that's exactly what Paul did in this day and age. And it's also what Christians did moving forward in history. Listen to these words from Rodney Stark in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. He shares, all known societies above the very primitive level have been slave societies. Now, isn't that an indictment on the human heart? For whatever reason, all through history, due to our sinfulness, we have looked out at other people and we've said, if I'm stronger than you, I have the right to tell you what to do. Now, Stark goes on, he says, Amend this amid this universal slavery, only one civilization ever rejected human bondage. You know which civilization that was? Christendom. And it did it twice. 
The very first time slavery was eliminated anywhere in the world was not during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, but during the Dark Ages. And it was accomplished by clever church leaders who first extended the sacraments to the slaves. Since slaves were Christians, priests began to urge owners to free their slaves as an infinitely commendable act. Soon, no one doubted that slavery in itself was against the divine law. And you know, the seeds for all of this came from Paul's teaching in the scriptures. In 1 Timothy 1.10, he identified enslavers as ungodly sinners. Later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul said this to masters in Ephesians 6.10, Stop threatening your slaves. Just because you're in this economic system where you get to benefit from their work does not mean that you get to dehumanize them. Later on, he says this radical statement in Ephesians 5.21. He says, masters and slaves should what? Submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ, I mean, shockwaves in the ancient world to say something like that. But probably the most radical example of this in ancient history, is a letter that Paul penned to a Christian slave owner named Philemon. You see, the backstory is that Philemon owned a slave named Anesimus. Anesimus had run, which gives me the indication that this was probably not a great dynamic for Anesimus. And somewhere along the way, we don't know all of the details, we don't know all of the backstory, but somewhere along the way, he finds Paul, and Paul does something radical. Instead of doing the right thing, which is to send Onesimus back to Philemon and for Onesimus to kind of receive the due consequence of his decision, Paul harbors a runaway slave. He provides him with safe shelter, I believe that he tells him the gospel, and Onesimus trusts Christ. And then he writes this letter on behalf of this runaway slave to Philemon. And listen to the core statement that he says to Philemon, verse 16. Onesimus is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother. Friends, I've got to tell you, We may wish that he went further. We may wish for a clear statement like slavery is an abomination. But Paul was (laughs) shooting cannonballs into the institution of his day. He was saying essentially, this guy is on equal terms with you. In fact, one scholar, Tim Brookings, says this. He suggests that Paul's term no longer in his command to welcome Onesimus strongly indicates that Paul was suggesting manumission. You see what we're talking about here? The Christian gospel was radically changing a world that had so many barriers that had been in place for so long. And it's doing it on the basis of equality. I think the big point that we see in all of this is that the gospel is the great equalizer of people. While there might be legitimate differences between us, we all get to Christ the same way. There's no difference in approach. There's no leg up if you came from one background versus another. In fact, Galatians says it like this, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave, 
So Jew or Gentile, which is ethnicity, slave or free, which is class, male or female, which is gender, you are all one in Christ. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that the commonness of your salvation is greater than the reality of your differences. Now, let's acknowledge something. There are real differences between people, and we do well to acknowledge differences. Difference is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Different culture, different appearance, good. But the commonness of our salvation, the fact that we all are lost sinners in need of a Savior is greater than those differences, which means we can come together. Now, here's the thing. We've got to be asking ourselves, what does that mean for us today? Now, let me frame this with, with an analogy that might be useful. Why, why do we go to, pre, or why do movie makers create previews. Have you ever seen a preview that, that stood out to you that really captured your attention? I'm going to show my nerd card here for a minute, but there was a preview that caught my attention, and it was the preview of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. When I saw that preview, I was like, oh my goodness, I have got to go see that movie. And I did, and my nerdy heart loved it the entire way through. Now, we know the purpose of previews. Previews are meant to whet the appetite. They're meant to attract us to the main attraction. Now, some previews do not serve their purpose. Some previews, you know, say it's a comedy or something like that. You watch the preview, and you think it's going to be hilarious, and it turns out the only funny moments were in the preview. And then there's those previews where you watch the preview, and you just say, nah, no thank you. But the good previews, the ones that capture our imagination, are the ones that drive the box office sales. I want to suggest that a big show is coming to town. It's called The Kingdom of God. The first installment came when Jesus was born into the world. There's a great second installment that's coming. You see, he's the star. And it's going to be a worldwide production but until the big production comes, God has left the world with some hot clips, and we, the church, are those hot clips. We're the preview. Dr. Tony Evans, in his book, Oneness Embraced, makes this crucial statement. He says, until we as God's people intentionally embrace, apply, and reflect the kingdom, the church has little to offer the world. And I also want to suggest that the greatest preview, or one of the greatest previews, is the oneness of the local church. Listen to this preview in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through and in all. Now, do you know what this means to the local church? It means that beyond just the differences of our spiritual gifts, we are one despite our racial differences, cultural differences, income levels, gender differences. We are one and we are not relegated 
or elevated based upon things which we mostly cannot control, such as the color of my skin, such as whatever gender I was born, such as the economic opportunities that have been afforded to me, or maybe even the natural abilities that I was born with. And here's the thing. This oneness makes the church spiritually strong. Now, in that exchange where Peter acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus said in response to Peter, he said, upon this rock I will build my church, and what? The gates of hell will not overcome. Now, when we tend to think about the spiritual warfare that's happening in the world, we tend to look at it and think of the church as being on the defensive. Satan's always out there, and he's attacking us, and, and we need to defend ourselves. But I got to tell you, Jesus meant in that statement that the church is to go on the offensive, that we go to the gates of hell, not the gates of hell coming to us. So why do we get on the defensive? Well, I would suggest we get on the defensive when we start worrying mostly about our own little churchy things, like, what kind of music do I like now? What kind of sermons am I interested in hearing? Did that appeal to me personally? Or does this place mostly look like me and make me feel comfortable? My point is this. When we think mostly about ourselves instead of our unified salvation and mission, then hell starts overpowering us. And I sometimes wonder for the church in the United States if we're not losing attendance because we tried to grow the church based upon homogenizing principles. What do I mean by that? I mean homogeneous, like and like. Everybody's got to be the same age. Everyone has to think the same politically. Everyone has to look the same in terms of culture and ethnicity. Wouldn't it be more powerful if the church looked heterogeneous, different, joined together across racial, class, and gender lines as a unified whole because the gospel is so much bigger than any one of those distinctions, all for the glory of Jesus to advance the kingdom of God? I have a dream, and I want to share it with you. When I was worshiping in Dalton, Illinois, the Lord put a hunger in my soul. And, and the hunger is really for diverse worship. I loved having lunches from time to time with someone who was homeless and being in church and hearing a beautiful expression of different forms of worship, different preaching styles, all of these things. I loved looking out on Sunday morning and, and seeing a picture of Revelation chapter 7, which is a picture of heaven. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and language worshiping together because we all have been saved by the same Lord. Now, there's some of that here, and I love it, and I appreciate it, but I want more. <laughs> I want more. But i got to tell you, that's something you can't manufacture. You can't coerce the Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, we're going to just make this thing happen, and we hope you bless it. But we can pray. And I keep praying to this end, God, 
please make this happen in some organic way. Bring in people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all ethnicities. Lord, let this place look a little more like heaven before we get there. You know what I think? If that dream is ever fulfilled, I think people would have a very hard time walking into this place and putting Christmas on lockdown. They'd say, who is this Jesus that gets all these different people together for this common purpose? And it would impact our community. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray that God does something unique and wonderful and diverse here. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I am deeply grateful to you for being the God of all people. As we've been going through this series, Christmas on Lockdown, we've seen some just marvelous movements. We've seen that if Jesus had not come, then we would not experience and appreciate human dignity and human rights as we do today. And that that comes out of that theology that man male and female, is created in the image of God. And David marveled over that. He said, when I look at the heavens, when I look at creation, when I look at the universe, what is man that you're mindful of him? And yet, for whatever reason, you've uniquely elevated people. And now we move into this area of these common barriers. And as we look at these, Lord, this morning, we, we recognize that human hearts are so prone to fear, to fear the stranger, to fear the other. But we see that the gospel shatters those dividing walls, and, and we pray for a gospel movement in our church, that you would bring people from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, that, Lord, maybe even on a Sunday morning we'd hear different languages spoken in our hallways. We want to see this because we believe that heaven looks like this, Lord, and we want this place to be more like heaven. Isn't that what the Lord prayed in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for that, Lord. We ask you to work in powerful ways here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.